Thanks, Brandon. Good morning, everybody. Everybody bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? You don't even know what that means, do you? Good to see uh, some of you guys here this morning from the, who were down in Texas for the past week. You guys are real soldiers. You drove, what, 26 hours straight, something like that, 28? And you're still here at service. First service, no less. So, Kurt, uh, Al, anybody else here? I saw John Hurst here earlier. Maybe he's down in the ABA. Uh, we had a team of uh, nine guys down in Texas this past week uh, serving the Lord with crisis response and helping to rebuild homes uh, damaged by the hurricane last year. And uh, we'll be taking more trips down there. So you can kind of put that in the back of your mind as to whether or not you'd be interested in being part of a, another trip. Not sure we'll get, it uh, doesn't look like we'll get any more in before summer. And summer's pretty brutal down there. So probably looking towards the fall to do that. Well, how many of you, um, how many of you are Chevy guys? I don't mean you have a Chevy. I mean, you're a Chevy guy or gal. Put up your hand. Yeah, I got a few of you. Okay. How many of you are Ford guys or gals? Well, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I bought a Chevy last year for the first time in 26 years, I think. Uh, it's actually longer than that, probably. Uh, I grew up in a, in a home, a Chevy home. Some of you are wondering, what's he talking about? Um, there's a rivalry, kind of inner, inner car rivalry here between Chevy and Ford owners that really has long roots. I mean, it goes, goes way back. And uh, I, bought, I bought a Ford, not my first one, but kind of, uh, the one that launched me onto a Ford buying spree back in 90, 1991. And it was, it was a used station wagon. It was so good. It was so comfortable. I had it so long. I'm like, this is the car for me. And so I've been buying Fords ever since uh, until last summer when I couldn't find what I want in the Ford brand. So, uh, But there's this, this rivalry uh, between Chevy and, and Ford guys. It's, um, I remember my son, um, when he didn't have a Ford, my son Cameron, he was into Toyotas at the time and, uh, and foreign cars in general. And one day, uh, one year, he made me a birthday card. And on the outside of the birthday card was uh, um, uh, the logo, Ford logo. Now, if you don't know what it looks like, it's uh, the word Ford in an oval. And inside, he wrote, at least they circled the problem. <laughs> I found out later he didn't make that up. Um, I remember when I was a kid, and I, I grew up in a Chevy family, uh, the, the motto was Ford stood for fix or repair daily. And then the guys that have Fords, I found out they said, no, it stands for uh, first on race day. Uh, so there's this, this tension between the Ford and Chevy owners. You, you know how you double the value of a Ford? Anybody know? Fill up the tank with gas. You know how you get a Chevy uh, to go from zero to 60 in less than 15 seconds? Push it off a cliff. <laughs> and my personal favorite one, the Chevy owner goes into the auto parts store and uh, says to the guy, I need a, a pair of windshield wipers for my Chevy. And the clerk goes, that sounds like a fair trade. But they're friendly rivalries, right? Nobody's going to trash uh, some, somebody else's Ford or trash somebody else's Chevy. Not usually. There's friendly rivals, 
rivalries. We have them, we have all kinds of them, right? The, the sports rivalries. Um, it was funny, we had a Super Bowl party this year at our house, we invited the young adults and, and almost everybody was an Eagles fan there. I, I, I wasn't, but I, I admitted to you I was gonna cheer for them that night. And most everybody's cheering for the Eagles. Now there's, there was uh, one or two there that weren't quite on board, and I won't mention Quentin's name, but um, <laughs> not everybody was quite on board with the, with the Eagles. And that's kind of fun, too. I, we had a party a number of years ago uh, for all of the Redskins fans at Keystone to come and watch a Redskins game in our house. Uh, one couple showed up. <laughs> not a lot of them. Um, but it's fun to, to watch a football game where you have uh, people from both teams, you know, supporters of both teams there. It just kind of adds to the, to the fun. But it's, it's friendly competition and it? it's friendly rivalries. Now, they're not all like that. And some of these, uh, some of the things that where people feel strongly about uh, this and other people feel strongly about this, there's, there's greater tension. In the wake of the uh, 2016 election, uh, right after Donald Trump was elected, about two weeks afterwards, a group of high school students in Texas, under the auspices of their teacher, performed a skit in the class where they assassinated the president-elect. Uh, a couple weeks after that, actually about a month and a half, I guess, um, in the, again in the Texas uh, legislature, there was uh, tension over immigration and uh, immigration uh, proposals. And a Republican, there's some dispute about who said what, but supposedly a Republican uh, lawmaker said to a Democratic uh, colleague, I'm going to put a bullet in the brain of so-and-so, which was another Democratic congressman. And you've heard some of this kind of talk in the wake of the election. There's, I mean, f- uh, feelings have run high about this, about that, about my position on this person, my position on this person, my policy position here, my policy position there. To the extent that people are saying horrific things to and about each other. And I think most of us, if we sat down and and talked about it, we'd say, we would love to see everybody get along. Go back, what, 20 years and Rodney King and the wake of the riots in Los Angeles was saying, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? You'd like that, wouldn't you? We'd like to all sit at a table and all be able to agree with something, about something. And there, it's interesting, we see calls in the midst of this political firestorm. We hear calls for, from people on both sides of the, of, of the debates calling for unity. Here's the thing. If you were pushed on your desire to have unity, at what price would you agree to unity? Would it be for everybody to dispense with their own convictions? Because if you push in the political realm, most people say, I want unity as long as the other side stop or gives up their opinions, gives up their convictions. It might surprise you to know that Jesus doesn't always promote unity. In fact, what we're about to read in the scripture says the exact opposite. Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 49. 
Jesus says, I have come to set the world on fire and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Father, that, this doesn't really sound like the kind of thing that we get excited about. Not only is there tension among people, but there's tension among people who are blood, who are family members, who are relatives. And not just distant relationships, uncles and great nieces, but close up, father and son, mother and daughter. Jesus doesn't mention it, but perhaps even in some cases between husbands and wives. Give us uh, the mind of Christ this morning that we would understand this as Jesus meant it, not take it further than he meant it, and yet not fail to take it as far as he meant it. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us insight, understanding, and the resolve to be the, to take division as far as Jesus says it's going to have to go and no further. Guard us against the enemy of our souls, hates you, hates us, hates, hates unity in the body of Christ, but surely fans the flames of division between the body of Christ and the rest of the world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In these verses, Jesus talks about basically two days of wrath, days set far apart from each other, and in the middle of that, many years of division. It says in verse 49, I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. That doesn't sound very nice. And then he talks about a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of him. Jesus is talking about two different days there. One about... uh, well, for both, for both of these days, for him, they would be future days. For us, one of them is now past. Jesus is talking about uh, far down the road, the day of destruction, when he comes back to um, bring the Father's wrath to humanity. Future day, day of the Lord, day of God's wrath. He's going to bear God's wrath to humanity. Now, if you look throughout scripture, you'll often see fire as an indicator of God's judgment. Whether we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis where fire rained down from heaven and destroyed those cities, uh, the fires that God brought into the camp of the Israelites when they were on one of their many periods of rebellion against God and fires just sprung up in the camp, or the fires of hell, 
or the final judgment fires, uh, not the final judgment, but the, on the earth in the book of Revelation it speaks about God bringing his fire to the earth and there is going to be a, a purging of the earth. Everything will be destroyed by fire and then made new. So fire is often this picture of judgment throughout scripture. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about a day of burning. There's a future day where he knows he's coming back and he's not looking forward to it in the sense that, oh, he can't wait to judge people, but he can't wait to fulfill his father's will. And in the same way, there is a, an anticipation of his father's will when it comes to this baptism of suffering that's ahead for him, for him. And of course, he's speaking about the day that he's going to go to the cross and bear God's wrath now for humanity instead of to humanity. It's interesting, Jesus says about this suffering that he's under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think that Jesus thought the cross would be no big deal? Do you think that when Jesus looked ahead at the, the suffering he was gonna endure on the cross that he thought, oh, I'm God, that's, that's really not gonna be that difficult to endure. Everything in the gospels that Jesus said about the cross says something different. We know we read, read in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying to his father and he's, he knows what's ahead and he says, if there's any other way we can accomplish this thing, let's go that route instead. We have this picture here again. There's, there's a burden. Jesus did not go to the cross. Eh, no big deal. Jesus went fully knowing what he was going to face because he was, after all, not just God, but he was the God-man. And so in his humanity, all the nerves function in his body, just like the nerves function in your body. All the anxiety that you would face, uh, that you would feel coming up to that kind of suffering, he felt and did not look forward to it. And yet he understood this was God's plan and it was a good plan and it would be ultimately a blessing for mankind. Now, to stop there at what Jesus was going to face on the cross, I think is important to do, to think about what Jesus said from the cross as we get to talking about this division that he predicts. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, uh, shortly before he died, there was one cry out to his father that uh, just has to be gut-wrenching. If you think about it as a dad or, or as a mom, that your son would cry this out. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me or abandoned me? Did he? Was what Jesus was saying actually occurring? The answer to that is, mm-hmm. Habakkuk 113 says, God says to God, your eyes are too holy to look on evil. And so there was a day when God's son bore the sins of all humanity on his shoulders. That the father had to look away. Now, in some sense, Jesus was also speaking about the humanity of what he was going through. That is, my father is not coming to rescue me. And yet Jesus knew that was going to be the case. But on that day, his father could not look upon his son because of what he was doing. 
because of what he was bearing, because of what Jesus was on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin. He became sin for you because you could not solve your sin problem yourself because I could not solve my sin problem myself. He became sin for us. (laughs) Hallelujah. But on that day, there was a division the likes of which the world has never seen and never will. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that's something of a, of a preview of the kind of division that comes between human beings in this period of time between when Jesus came the first time and then died for humanity and when he will come the second time and bring God's judgment on humanity. Jesus says, you are going to experience division. You, you think I've come to divide, or you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. And Jesus says it this way in Mark and Matthew, I've come to bring a sword. Families are going to be split apart. Relative, close relatives are going to be at odds with each other. What is he talking about? He's talking about the people who in one family, make, some people make a decision for Christ and others by virtue of perhaps no decision have made a decision against Christ. And there are, they are going to be at odds with one another. This idea that we somehow can uh, be for Christ and everyone else is going to be happy with that decision, everyone else is going to be happy with that life is not a realistic picture. The fact that you are not under threat of death by, uh, by your relatives does not mean that that's a normal picture in the world. In fact, we talk about this here. This is a family of faith right here, right? Family of faith. Praise God for the family of faith. Do you realize that there are parts of the world where Christians have this as their only family? This is it. Because their families have kicked them out of the house They've poisoned their names in the community. They have written them off. They don't want anything to do with them. In some cases, they've threatened them. In some cases, they have actually attempted to kill their own flesh and blood. Why? Simply because they're following Jesus. The fact that you and I don't experience that sort of thing is is an, if you look at 2,000 years of Christian history, is much more of an anomaly than a normality. The fact that you chose Jesus and didn't get in major trouble with your families is unusual rather than usual. Now, some of us have experienced difficulties. That's not to say that it's not the case. And tensions within the family, far different from what some Christians around the world experience. And you say, Jesus, why, why, need, why must that be the case? Do you remember when Jesus was here on earth? How many fans and friends he had? At least at first. But as time went on, Jesus continued his ministry. That became less and less the case. More and more tension, more and more opposition. 
And Jesus says in John chapter 15, beginning of verse 18, he says, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. You shouldn't assume that how they treated me, you'll somehow get treated differently. If they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. And so you're going to find out, if you haven't already, that people are going to be unhappy with you following Jesus. Again, might not be as severe a reaction as many people around the world will find, but opposition nonetheless. And just to take some broad categories today of why you're going to find opposition as a follower of Jesus, one might be because of the exclusivity of your claim, the exclusivity of Christ's claim. What I mean by that is that you believe that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. There are not multiple paths. Very unpopular today. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it would have been great if he stopped right there. And then people could interpret it as, oh, Jesus is saying, I am a way. But he continues, no one can come to the Father but by me. No one. There's the problem of sexual ethics today. The Bible seems to have such a narrow uh, narrow path when it comes to sexual ethics. Are you serious? That your Jesus says that uh, homosexual relationships are out? Are you serious that your Jesus says that um, we can't decide our gender um, on our own? Has to be dictated biology? Are you serious? This, the, 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 this would be expected today that people who are not married can't have sexual relations? Are you serious? People object to Jesus because of his insistence that he is going to exercise God's wrath eventually on humanity that has rejected him. What's interesting is that people who are unhappy with those kinds of convictions are increasingly found in churches. Does that surprise you? Think back to when Jesus was here on planet Earth. Who were his major opponents? Religious folks. In fact, Jesus often found a welcoming committee for people who didn't have anything to do with religion. It was often the religious folks that had the most problem with him because Jesus either was too religious or not religious enough, depending on their point of view. Here's the application I think that Jesus has for us in these words. First of all, if you're going to follow me, you should not be surprised at opposition. If you're going to follow me, you should not be surprised at opposition. And if you're going to follow me, no surrender. No surrender. I can almost guarantee that at least two-thirds of us have had difficult conversations with people in our families and people who are our friends about those three issues I just talked about. People who are in churches that increasingly are giving up biblical sexual ethics, biblical exclusive Christianity, and biblical judgment. 
And the question that we're going to have to be wrestling with is whether or not we're going to succumb to the pressure of what the culture is telling us and increasingly what churches are telling us or whether we will stand with Jesus. Could you stand with Jesus in a conversation with someone? Do you know what the scriptures say? Do you know what Jesus, listen, do you know what Jesus believes? If you have a, picked up an outline this morning, you have some scriptures there that will give you some foundations for those three things that are increasingly problem, increasingly causing tensions. I had a friend that sat down with me a couple of years ago and he said, he said, Keith, what should I do? He said, in, in our church, our pastor um, is saying now that um, he believes that God approves of homosexual relations. He's ready to marry them. What, which, what should I do? I don't want to be a church hopper. And I said, I'll call him Jim. I said, at the end of the day, Jim, there are some fundamentals that we can, uh, that we have to stand on. And there are some secondary things that we can, we can wrap our arms around each other and say, this is, we don't agree on these secondary issues, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But I said, there are some basics that cannot be negotiated. Who is God? What is the Bible? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the Holy Spirit? Who are people? And that's where we get into the issues of sexuality, sexual ethics. What is a human being? What is a person? And, and it would be interesting just to have you raise your hands. How many of you have had these kinds of conversations with people that you know and love? And how many of you ag have agonized that night and said, God, I don't, must this be like this? Can't we all just get along? My friends, this is not a Chevy Ford rivalry. This is not a Philadelphia Eagles, Washington Redskins rivalry. These are some fundamentals, fundamentals of our faith. And if they are withdrawn from our faith, just like the Jenga pile, faith at some point crumbles. I want to pray for us this morning as we close. I want to pray for us to be men and women and boys and girls who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And by the power of the spirit that we can walk in faith in such a way that we do not um, wiggle, that we do not succumb in our faith and that we can be able to speak for our faith with people that we disagree with in godly ways. I think one of the things, one of the challenges that we have to wrestle with is in, um, a a spirit of animosity because I say, okay, we believe this, you don't believe this. And we have a kind of attitude toward others that is ungodly. That's not something that glorifies the Lord. I was reading this week about a, a man who's a, for, a former believer, um, professing believer, who's now an atheist. And as he began to date a woman who's a Christian family, when they found out he was an atheist, the kinds of things that they said to him and did to him were just, um, well, unbiblical, ungodly. 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having the kind of healthy foundation that makes us stand on our faith, makes us able to defend our faith for the glory of God and for the advance of the kingdom and for the good of others. So let me pray for us. Father, for um, Jesus' name's sake, we want to have a a faith that is not simply um, grounded in and founded in song. It's not simply grounded in and founded in good feelings, but is grounded in and founded in um, truth. Jesus said that truth sets us free. And we understand that the spirit of the age is, is such that um, increasingly the enemy uh, has this victory and that victory and increasingly persuades people and draws them away to lies. And so we pray by the word of God and by the spirit of God that you would guard us, that our faith might be founded on sure things, that our resolve might be to love people, but to love people in the truth, that if division must occur, it occurs because others have decided to divide, that they pull away from us rather than us pull away from them. We think about the rapid growth of the church in the first and second century as people without hostility or acrimony simply shared their faith with other people. And when others pushed back, they loved them. They stood in what they believed. They taught what they believed. They shared what they believed. And increasingly we get that this is a 2,000 year old document. How can you possibly stand on this? As if because it's new, it's right. Because it's new, it's true. Because it's new, it's better. We believe in a God who made heaven and earth. All things old all things new that are true and good are yours. And may that kind of confidence resonate in us, by us, through us for all our lives so that Jesus might be made much of and glorified all of our days. We pray in his name. Amen.